the Irish Times Inside Business Podcast, in association with EY, building a better working world. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This week I'll be looking at the significance of a Supreme Court judgment last week in relation to the tax status of gig economy workers. And in the second half of the show, I'll be talking to a Portuguese journalist to get a Lisbon perspective on Web Summit's recent travails. But first to the Supreme Court ruling from last week. It decided that delivery drivers for a franchisee of Domino's Pizza should be treated as employees and not contractors. This follows a case taken by Revenue against an entity called Carshan, and the decision could have important implications for workers in the gig economy. To tease out the implications of the ruling, I'm joined by Emma Malone, work correspondent of the Irish Times, and Anne O'Connell, an employment solicitor and a member of the Employment Law Association of Ireland Committee. I began by asking Emma Malone to describe the background to the case. This has its roots back in 2011-2012. What you had is a, a kind of fleet of delivery drivers working for a company called Karshan Midlands Limited that was trading as Domino's. That company operates uh, three franchises, I think, of the uh, of the chain. The tax inspectors, the revenue commissioners, looked at, at uh, their tax returns and decided that these workers, rather than being self-employed contractors, should be actually classified as PAY workers. Now, a tax inspector made that decision in, in 2018. And that kicked off what then became a very long-running process. The company appealed that decision to the High Court. The High Court upheld the revenues decision. It was in turn then appealed to the Court of Appeal. It overturned that decision by two to one, relying very heavily, it seemed, on uh, this this concept of mutuality of of obligations, the fact that the the company is, you know, for a person to be an employee, is required to provide work to the person and the person is then required to carry that out. Uh, The decision there was two to one. And then what we had last Friday was, was the Supreme Court overturning that decision again in a unanimous 7-0 decision, really suggesting that that wasn't such a key element of the test to judge whether a person was a, an employee or not, and suggesting a, a, a range of five questions that should should be laid down as, as the, the, the kind of basic you know, uh, parameters of a test going forward, I guess, to, to establish whether, whether those people are, in fact, employees of a company or are contractors. Now, it's important to state that this is a tax case. It was about whether those people should be considered PAY workers for for the purposes of taxation. It did not directly address the question of the consequences of, of these questions or their status under employment law. The court essentially said that that would be a matter for other courts to decide or for other, you know, other venues to decide. That will be done, it seems, over time in the WRC, the Labour Court and other courts. Um, but that's where we are at the moment. Uh, this this uh, does seem to have, have highlighted the potential to, to really shake up the, uh, the the landscape in this area, which is a very very big area, it involves a lot of people. People are a little bit vague on on how many, but if you if you look at PwC published a report last year which referenced twelve percent of the entire workforce, you know, well over three hundred thousand people being self employed without employees, and uh, and and that is the kind of you know the category that that these people would would fall into. We're not quite sure of the proportion of those. Clearly, there's a, a wide range of people, some of whom you know are delivery drivers for 
fast food outlets, some of whom are freelance journalists or working in the finance sector, IT, programmers, all sorts of people working increasingly in these sort of kind of niche areas and, you know, are in areas where it's it's at least ambiguous whether they're employees or, or self-employed and, and have a range of aspirations within that. Some, some want to be considered employees, others are perfectly happy to be contractors. But the, the numbers are very big and the consequences of this decision seem to be potentially very big too. Anne O'Connell, you're an employment law expert uh, in this area. So I'm wondering what the import of this decision by the Supreme Court is last week for employees and employers. I suppose it's important to say we would consider these people now to be gig economy workers, which is not something we would have said back in 2010. But it's it's very definitely a, a term we use now. So if you're a gig economy employee, what's the import of this decision? I think, as you mentioned there, it's very important to remember that this case is about assessment of workers in 2010 and 2011. So the workplace has changed so dramatically since then due to a number of elements, including the amount of legislation, employment legislation that's been brought in in since then. So uh, including the Protection Disclosure Acts, which covers a much wider group of, of workers. So I think that the impact won't be as dramatic as, as people think it will be, because I think that a lot of the arrangements will have been updated from where it was in 2010, 2011. I think that where will the impact is that those that relied on the Court of Appeal decision in relation to their interpretation of mutuality of obligation will have to re redo that arrangement. And just to explain that concept of mutuality of obligation was, as Emma said, where it was developed from uh, cases that it was that they determined it as it, it must be a precursor requirement that the employer, should we say the business, must commit to providing work and then the, the worker commits to doing the work. Now, that would seem, as Carson argued, would be like a future commitment because your commission to give work, which is very logical. And then they've brought that further to say that would be a continuity commitment, which the Supreme Court criticised and said no. They analysed the entire case and said that is not what actually it is. And they said that that version of mutuality of obligation is not required to be deemed to be an employee. They said that what the proper meaning of mutuality of obligation, having gone back to older cases, is that it's work for pay. And they said that's clearly that can include contractors. All it does is filter away volunteers. But they said that is the mutuality. If you go back, that as they did, they went back to the older cases and they said that is actually what the meaning of mutuality of obligation. It's not this obscure thing you commit to doing work and you commit to doing it. And there's no future. They said that that proper um, interpretation can be just contemporaneous. So I think it will impact in a lot of cases like the gig economy because the Supreme Court did say that you can be an employee for one shift, one roster. So that's sort of scary that they can they can just do it once and they can be an employee for that, just doing that once. Well, let's talk about the freelance journalist. I suppose this is an area we, we know about our, ourselves. If a freelance journalist rings up me as business editor of the Irish Times and says, I'd like to write some stories, here are some ideas. And I say, well, that's great. I'll take those three stories from you, please. Uh, can you file them within the next uh, week, let's let's say? And that person files those uh, three stories and um, 
you know, in the normal course of events, we'd pay them for those three stories. They would file their own uh, tax return mm. at the end of the year. And they could be working for other publishers uh, as well. So where does that person stand in relation to what was decided by the Supreme Court last week? In relation to that individual, the Supreme Court, that doesn't, because from the facts that you've given me, there was no obligation. The Irish Times didn't didn't say like, we will definitely give you work. It was that uh, they came and they tried, it would be like trying to sell something. Okay, so they're know. pitching on an occasional basis. Well, let me change it then. Let me say somebody comes to me and says, uh, I'd like to write a column for the Irish Times every week and I have some great ideas and so on and so forth. I say, that's a great idea. We're going to uh, use you as a columnist every week, but you're not on the staff of the Irish Times. You're a, a freelance person. You don't come into the office. But every week they're going to write a column. It's going to be a, a defined length and a defined uh remuneration for that column, where would they stand? Well, that would definitely be something that would need to be uh, looked at. Uh, I think that, uh, as Supreme Court said, you like every working arrangement nowadays will have arrows pointing both to being employee and to an independent contractor and you see which ways, which goes more in one direction. And in that situation, you'd look at the amount of control that the Irish Times has, the editor has in relation to the length of the article, the deadline it has to be in, the topic on uh, which it, it is, the rate of pay, and whether or not the journalist can get somebody else to write the article without any, you know, just uh, and still the journalist be paid and he pays the other, the substitute. So you're you're looking at all of that control. So from facts that you gave me, it would look like that columnist would be more more on the line of being an employee. So you'd have to make sure that you would cover all of the other elements and try and put more elements in place that would indicate that that person is in business on their own accord, that they can make a profit. So how do you do that? So a lot of it is trying to to see can they make a profit or take on risk themselves. In the situation that you described, I'd see it very difficult for them to do that. So another way around that at the moment is that they engage them through a limited company. Okay, so we heard a lot about Ryan Tuberty's pay during the summer. And he was a top earner at RTE and he wasn't an employee. Mm. So in his scenario, he would have to set up or, you know, anybody who's uh, very well remunerated and working for the likes of RTE, let's say, they would have to set up a, a limited company. Yeah, but it's Ryan Tuberty's, like from my just public knowledge of Ryan yeah. Tuberty's, the way he worked, I mean... You would definitely, uh, or T would would have would provided that through. He would have done a true limited company to make sure that he wasn't going to be deemed to be an employee because if he was going to be deemed to be employee, it would cost or T more. He may not have then got the pay that he was looking for because you're paying a lot more tax on that, and sure. you know. And I just wonder how a lot of these gig economy workers are going to feel about this because presumably, maybe I'm wrong here, but presumably a lot of them are operating in the black market. Maybe they're not here legally. They don't have a visa to work here, yeah. etc. So it might have, this kind of casual arrangement might have suited them because they might not be paying tax at all. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that it's not going to be welcome, a reassessment. If, there, if it does change the arrangement, again, it all depends on how the arrangement is set up. But if it does end up in them, a lot of them don't want to be employees. There's a lot of individuals that do not want to be employees and they might work for multiple businesses and they might have their main employment in one. And then for their second job, they don't want to be paying full tax on that job or they might want to be they want, might want to have more freedom. And in their second job, the only way they can have that flexibility and freedom is by doing it through an, in, an independent contractor, because the business may not be able to give freedom 
that freedom as an employee because then all their employees might look for that. So they might be only be able to provide for it through this mechanism. And it's not all like, you know, people say, oh, they're just being, uh, you know, exploiting workers. That's not always the case. It's more that it's that they're trying to give flexibility. But I think what the Supreme Court decision does is it gives more clarity. They went through all of the tests and they've given much more clarity and they've nailed it down to five questions to be asked, which is great because when you're assessing, when, when we're asked to, our solicitors are asked to assess uh, whether or not this individual is an employee or independent contractor or asked how can we can make, the businesses are asking how we can we make this person, like they hate it when we go, well, it depends. Because that's an awful answer to give. It is, yeah. Can I just ask, Anna, let's say I set up a, a franchise for um, a pizza company. And I'm going to have uh, drivers uh, delivering my pizzas for me um, on a, you know, seven nights a week. Um, I go to you, you're my solicitor, and I say mm-hmm. to you, and uh, what do I need to do now? I've read about this uh, story, uh, about this Supreme Court decision. Can I have these people as casual drivers? Do I have to put them on the payroll as PAYE workers? What would your answer be? <laughs> it depends. Uh, well, I mean, I would say that... Um, I would give a structure as in which and I'd ask the business, could they could they operate within a particular structure that would limit the control that was that that Domino's uh, or Karshan existed so that you can allow the drivers to make a profit by delivering as much as they want. Uh, I would also look at to seeing that they don't have to like, is there a way that we can do the branding as a sponsorship as opposed to having to wear like the branding? Like, you know, that they get they can they have a choice to wear the branding if they wear it. Let's like give them a fee, give them give them payment if they wear it, but they don't have to wear it. You know, get reduce the control, take away, like reduce the control and have it that they are providing a facility as opposed to the same as an employee. If there's no branding, if, you know, if they just arrive in their own car and they don't have a, a you know, your pizza company T-shirt the pizza, on. The pizza will be in the box, in the okay. branded box. All right, so they can't get around it that way. Um, all right, so um, in, in a nutshell, is it still possible for them to be casual or do they need to be PAYE workers? Uh, it, is, it is possible to set up an arrangement. I think that where employers or companies want want definitively, they may be safer to set up casual employee contracts to, so they don't have a backlog of, say, people claiming for employ, for holidays or you know, they have clarity. There's paid sick leave, new rules coming yeah, in around and, that. And, and sick We've ordered enrollment for pensions. Yeah, in. exactly. But now, a lot of that depends on continuity of service. And Supreme Court were quite clever to point out that that wasn't for them because that's going to be a nightmare to yep. for where they work for one day. And like it could take a worker like that six years to manage to get one year continuity of service to be protected by the Unfair Dismissals Act. You know, it's it's going. That's all going to have to be looked at and 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 changed. But it's like anything. It's like should I say the rugby in the World Cup? Like it, ha- you have to look at the whole picture. It's like getting a red card. You know, you can't actually say this is this. You have to look at the whole mm. the incident as a whole, as a whether or not it amounts to a red card or not. Yeah. That's the same way as you look at the the relationship. It's not just the contract and where it is, it's how it operates and, and in that situation and in that context. So you could have very similar facts, but the context that it's in could mean that sure. it's more an employee than, an, than a contractor. Emmett, I'm wondering 
in terms of Carshan following this decision, does that mean they have to write a check to the revenue commissioners? Are the employees on the hook for any additional tax, even though it's going back, you know, nearly, what, uh, well over the decade now at this stage? I asked our, our Carshan what, what their take on it was, and they said they were considering the implications of it. Uh, similarly, the revenue commissioner said that they're weighing up the um, implications of it. Just going back to what Anne was saying there in terms of branding and, and how th- how companies will deal with this, I was on to Deliveroo during the weekend, and they said that they didn't believe that the, the, the findings in this case applied to them, that their business model was different and that the way they employed people people was different, um, or well, I guess employed is the wrong term. Their relationship with the people who did the delivery work for them was different. And and if you look at some of the work, you know, that like, yeah, I mean, Ellen O'Donoghue in, the, in our paper had a couple of pieces recently about the way that some of the um, migrant students are working for those companies. And, and there's, there's, a, there's a lot in that. There's a, some interesting aspects about them really, you know, if they're treated as self-employed, really that creates a, a, an issue because in many cases they don't have the uh, visa that requires them to be self-employed to allow them to work as as somebody who's self-employed, and so what's happening there is is a kind of interesting extension to it that they're they're working through um, through other people. People are kind of essentially um, acting as as, as middlemen and and are registered with the company, and then are, are allowing these people to work in their place. But what what's key there is that speaking to some of those uh, migrant workers myself, in many cases they're registered with with several different companies, and so they'll be registered with Just Eat and with Deliveroo and whoever else, Uber Eats. Uh, I don't know they they operate in, in Ireland, but certainly the other two do and um, they'll be on signed up to several different apps and so the kind of level of control exerted by the employer is is said to be less but also in terms of the branding I mean one of the one of the issues that arose in the in, in the Karshan case was this thing about um, and, and it's, uh, it's identified in the Supreme Court ruling is the, the kind of wearing of uniforms and as, as Anne says there you, you you know you could tweak that what what seems to happen with the delivery bike riders or whatever is that in many cases that's that's like a, a form of merchandising, that it's not a uniform, but that they they kind of announce, one of the companies announces that they're going to have a kind of, uh, you know, a handing out, you know, event somewhere and people can come and they can get their gear, they can get waterproof gear, they can get the kind of bags for carrying the, the food in the back. But when you order from Just Eat, somebody from, you know, may well arrive in branded uh, merchandise for a rival company. And that becomes an aspect of this. This becomes a way of of distancing yourself from the person who, as a company, distancing yourself from the person that's doing your work, the work on your behalf. As to the wider question as to whether whether there'll be tax uh, due here, you know, we don't don't know in this this specific case, although it would certainly, I think the the suggestion is that if the revenue commissioners have uh, have, have essentially won this case that the, that the people should be counted as employees for tax purposes. Then I then I you know I would assume that despite the fact that neither party has con- confirmed it that there will be a tax bill involved. I think the the wider tax implications are enormous. I mean going back to that PwC case, they suggested that up to twenty five percent of people in uh, in a variety of sectors may be misclassified in terms of the the, the way they're described as workers uh, that they should be employees rather than than uh, independent contractors, and uh, and that would have a, a very big implications on the tax front. It would also, as you suggest, have pension I- implications and other implications, which the unions are currently looking into. And SIP2 uh, this week have, have talked about the potential to take a, a test case based on this this decision. Just wondering, Emmett, does this mean that revenue is going to go trawling back um, through you know all of the various companies? I mean, Carshan is only one small player in a big pond, right? So is it going to go trawling back uh, to 2010, 2011 through all of the companies 
who had similar types of arrangements in place and tried to present them with a, a tax bill? Well, it's funny, I, I've certainly seen it suggested and Anne suggested it to me separately uh, when we talked the other day that they do have other cases that they're looking to move on. How, how, what the scale of that is remains to be seen, but um, it's it's very hard, you know, certainly Karjan were not operating in a vacuum here. They're part of a, a much broader landscape that involves, you know, many tens of thousands of people. The scale of the precedent set here remains to be seen and I think we'll only see it unfold over a matter of months as, as revenue kind of get, get to grips with it. But yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think there are going to be other, other companies taken in, in by this for sure. And um, by the way, Emmett, do we know how many people are involved in the Karshan case? No, we don't. Uh, well, certainly, I don't. No, I, I mean it was three branches of Domino's Pizza, and I uh, like I think they have around a hundred branches in Ireland. So, I mean, the numbers in that in the, that that company were small I, in the tens, I think. Uh, but you know, across the company, that specific company who, who operate a model of employing their own drivers, they do have a, a deal with one of the the uh, other. I think it's Just Eat. They do have a deal with them. But actually, when you order uh, Domino's Pizza, oddly enough, through uh, Just Eat, it's a Domino's driver that brings the, the, the food to you. So uh, they do seem to want to retain that kind of level, level of direct contract and that, and that level of control. So no, but the numbers at the heart of this case are quite small. Its importance is how it applies to a, 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 you know, a far, far larger number of people. Anna Connell, do you expect revenue to go trawling back and um, knocking on the doors of uh, various takeaway companies who would have had similar arrangements in place at that time? Like, I understand, actually, there are a number of cases actually waiting for this decision. Do you know how many? I was informed that, not through revenue, somebody mentioned that there was five. Again, it's a small number. You know, yeah. there must be hundreds, if not thousands of Well, you've got takeaways. to remember, revenue are always constantly, revenue and the Department of Social Protection are constantly doing audits on businesses, and they generally focus on a sector at a time. Around, around this time, they were focusing on sectors. That's why I've got less locum vets, less locum doctors. They have clamped down a lot on this already since this all started. So they're constantly doing this. Yes, I would be surprised if it didn't result in them going back and looking at, at similar companies and to see what they had in place. But um, I would I would be surprised if they hadn't already done that, mm. you know, at the, at the time. And is it fair been? for them to go back to... 2010 and, and 2011 and say, no, you are you should have been taxing them this way, not that, and here's a bill for it. No, I mean, I think tax and fairness never go really in the same sentence. But it's funny, the Supreme Court did actually indicate or to the to the revenue that the, the car shouldn't be penalised in relation to where one, as one arm of the department was saying one thing and another arm of the government department was saying another thing that so it was it was nearly giving an indication that the tax bill shouldn't be too high because it's such a it's such a grey area, you know that uh, which which I was surprised that the Supreme Court even commented in that regard. Okay, Anne O'Connell and Emma Malone, we leave it there. Thank you. Thanks. Okay, we're going to take a short break now. When I'm back, I'll be talking to J. E. Ratner, a journalist based in Lisbon, about the Web Summit. Back in a few moments. At EY, our purpose is to build a better working world. As one of Ireland's leading professional services firms, our exceptional people are at the centre of everything we do. We deploy technology at speed and innovation at scale to deliver exceptional solutions for our clients, enabling them to transform and grow. To find out more, 
visit ey.com. Welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. Now, last week saw the Web Summit embroiled in controversy following comments made by its founder and CEO Paddy Cosgrave over the conflict between Israel and Hamas. Cosgrave was forced to step down after a number of high-profile sponsors pulled out and Israel also quit the event, raising questions about whether it would actually take place in Lisbon next month or not. Jair Ratner is a journalist in Portugal and he joined me by phone from Lisbon and I began by asking him about the view from Portugal on the Web Summit controversy. Well, uh, people were afraid that that the Web Summit wouldn't happen. It's a big event in, in the city. For economic reasons, it's also a big event because Portugal, around 15% of the Portuguese GDP comes from tourism. And so, so it's difficult for the country if they lose it, they lose something like that. Uh, there's also a controversy, it's also controversial in the political field. So there, there were discussions on TV and on Monday. There was a television show in which Catarina Martins from Left Bloc Party, a left-wing political force that has been against giving public money to the Web Summit, saying that the Web Summit would do nothing for the Portuguese economy, and she defended Paddy Cosgrove on the basis of freedom of expression. And on the other side, a Christian Democrat member of the parliament of the CDS party Cecilia Meirelles condone what she called this cancellation culture, saying that it comes with the territory of social media participation, arguing that no critic could made, could be made to Israel because it's the only democratic country in the Middle East. So that's uh, about what uh, it's coming in, in, in the political scene in Portugal about the Web Summit. Jair, is it true that the Web Summit receives about 12 million euro a year in payments from uh, both the municipality in in Lisbon um, and the government as well? Well, it's uh, true. That's how they got the the Web Summit in Portugal. First, uh, it's more now this year. Until now, it was around 11 million, 8 million from the, the... central government and 3 million from the city municipality. And this year, the, the, the municipality of Lisbon started giving 6 million euros to the, the Web Summit so they would organize it in Portugal, to organize it in Lisbon. It's a big event for the tourism industry. You can imagine that now it's low season, so everything can, uh, should be made uh, that they do is to attract more tourists. And uh, you can see that the hotels are almost all full. And uh, I would say uh, 50% of the participants go to Airbnb and other kinds of uh, rentals of the same kind. And near the the web summit occurs, the the rental for Airbnb goes up in the web summit uh, season from 150 euros to 500 euros per night. So it's a big event here. Okay, so is there a feeling that Lisbon is is getting good value for its money in terms of this subsidy that's provided to Web Summit? No, it's uh, not just value for the money, for the government. It's kind of changing the, the way the country is being viewed outside until 
some years ago, Portugal was only seen for the country of cork and wine and olive oil. And, and nowadays, it, it's trying, the government is trying to change its, uh, the, the view of the country, saying it's a, a technological country, it's an IT country. The country is managing to attract digital nomads. To, and that's the goal of the country to, uh, in attracting the Web Summit. And it's really worked because now it's re it's really managed to change how the country is viewed. Yeah, sure. Um, there was a view here that the Web Summit might not be able to go ahead because so many sponsors, partners pulled out, Google, Siemens, IBM, Meta, Stripe, um, Intel, I could go on, the Israeli government uh, pulled away from it as well. And there was a, a view here with Paddy Cosgrave standing down as chief executive because he's very much the founder and driving force behind Web Summit that it might it might not go ahead. So was there a fear in Lisbon? Was there any sense in Lisbon that it could be cancelled this year? Yes, there was this uh, fear, but no, the, the organization said that uh, during this week, there were uh, 1,000 more uh, people that applied to Again, in, in in the web summit, so it didn't. Uh, there will still be around seventy thousand participants in the web summit, but I don't know for the next years because there is a contract between the web summit and organization or the company that runs the web summit and the Portuguese government. So that. The web summit will be uh, will take place in Lisbon until 2028. I don't know what will happen in, in the following years, and but this year is, uh, I think it will go on. That's uh, what the uh, the organization is, uh, is saying. Okay, uh, Jair Ratner, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Emma Malone, Anne O'Connell and J.A. Ratner for joining me on the show. John Casey produced this episode with J.J. Vernon on sound. Thanks also to our sponsor EY for its continued support. Remember, as a subscriber to the Irish Times, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care. The Irish Times Inside Business Podcast, in association with EY, building a better working world. <laughs>